Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. Okay, today we're going to be talking about despicable us. (laughs) So what is that? Well, there are qualities that all of us have that are bad. And no matter how intrinsically good we want to be as people, it's really easy for us to fall back and do bad things. And and those bad things uh, can really destroy our life and make our quality of life poor. So what we're really talking about is a battle uh, within ourselves to become a little bit better people and become a little bit more mindful of what our human nature is capable of. And, uh, you know, the first big thing uh, that comes to mind as far as some of our despicable traits that once again, we all have them is cruelty. And, uh, you know, Freud, Sigmund Freud, he believed that sadism or the desire to cause pain to another human being is the result of a a mix between sexual desire and aggression, which have biological and psychological bases and are a natural part of our human nature. So he believed that the parent's job in life is to civilize they're little heathens, and that, and that is to teach their children to control these natural impulses in order to live in a world with other human beings. And so what Freud thought is that we all have the possibility of acting on these impulses, and it, it's just that some of us have them under a better control than others. Um, Heinz Kohut, and he was a Freudian psychologist, and he he – he basically left uh, in about the 70s, but he developed a theory about self-psychology in which he argued that aggression against another person is always psychologically motivated. And so, you know, really by this, he meant that anger, rage, hate always have emotional psychological meaning, even though it's not always obvious or easily uh, identified. And so sometimes a rageful or sadistic behavior results from what he called a fragmentation of our character, which happens when a person feels that they're uh, becoming unglued. And so it's often a result, according this, at least according to Kohut, of a feeling that you're not being understood or accepted by someone who's important to you. And without understanding and acceptance, what Kohut believed is we lose ourselves. Rage or hatred uh, directed at another person can be a way of holding ourselves together. Now, I think it's a little bit of an overthought, quite frankly. I think that people go to rage simply because they feel disrespected and in, in, in simple terms uh, or they are afraid. And I think those are basically – that's from, coming from me. Those are basically the two roots that get us to rage. And you know, I think uh, all of the ideas um, have something of truth to them, at least the theories are around Uh, our human nature, our despicable human nature. There's also uh, the well-known data about children who are hurt either physically or emotionally by their parents or by other people in their lives who then become adults who are cruel to other people. And so there's also examples of children who suffered terribly in the hands of other people, yet who become generous, caring, and kind adults. So, you know, it's just amazing what these bad experiences can actually bring out in a person. The biggest thing that most people have to fight against is selfishness. You know, if someone says you're being selfish, there's no doubt that you've been criticized. But the message of your critic is clear that you're paying too much attention to your own wants, needs, well-being, and not enough attention to others. Now, once again, this show is just about how we can be more aware of our bad behaviors 
and, and temper them and actually become better people. And, and uh, selfish behavior is often described as, as basically immoral. So a good person thinks uh, of others first. And so this idea is uh, initiated and often quoted. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That was in uh, JFK's address in 1961, uh, January 20th. So according to some experts, selfish behavior is not only immoral, but it's also bad for you psychologically. And, and so, um, you know, claiming uh, if, you know, if you want happiness for a lifetime, help someone else. And that if we understand that, that that's what we're here for, we're not here for us. We're here to help others. And uh, so when we initiate things, if you're going to uh, write a book, if you're going to do a show, if you're going to go help people, you're doing it for them. And if you're looking for selfish gratification or status, um, that's the wrong motivator. You know, if you read enough self-help literature, you can't help but notice a different uh, view about thinking of yourself first that seems to contradict the, you know, the selfishness. You know, the label self-care refers to prioritizing your own physical health and psychological well-being by engaging in good eating habits, exercise, sleep, relaxation, enjoyable activities. And the motivator is not for you. It's so that you can help other people in life. And that's the important part about it, that you're not doing all that for you. You're doing that so that you can give back. And so you're giving to yourself in order to give back to others. You know, the, 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 um, the reason that one-sided or win-lose transactions are not always good is that there are negative consequences that outweigh the temporary gains. So people that like to simplify life, making everyone black or white, you're either this or that, they're simplifying life because they don't want to do the hard, which is to read the gray in people. And we should not be afraid of our despicable natures. Uh, we should embrace the fact that, that it's a battle that we have to continue to strategize. And so we want our good features to come out. More importantly, you know, someone who engages in, in emotional uh, manipulation to get what they want develops a reputation as someone not worth dealing with, someone to shun, to avoid. So reputation is, is not a trivial thing because it has everything to do with a, a person's integrity. And so to be happy, we need a network of people in our, uh, in our lives who like, love, and respect us and build us a network that we can play fair. And so, you know, engaging in uh, one-sided transaction is selfish because ultimately this behavior is bad for both the selfish person and the people victimized and exploited by the selfish person. And so, you know, when people count on people uh, to, to be selfless, um, they're really putting themselves out there and at risk because they know that there's a possibility that someone's going to be selfish. Uh, for instance, just a sad thing, you know, if a kid uh, leaves school and they find that their parent's not there and their parent, uh, you know, did something, ran an errand or did whatever, they, that parent has no idea how hurt that child is because now they're no longer a priority and now they have to be scared every day whether they're going to be picked up. That's just a simple, simple example. But we don't realize the damage to psyche of people when we are selfish. You know, neutral selfishness is another issue, and that means you're looking after your own well-being in ways that do not directly or substantially involve other people. So if, I, if you take five minutes to brush your teeth to avoid the ill effects of tooth or gum disease, this is a form of neutral selfishness, you know, looking after your dental hygiene, uh, you know, taking away, you, you know, you're not taking away from anybody's well-being, but you're, uh, you're really not adding much to it. So, you know, it'd be true if you take 10 minutes every morning to meditate. That's, that's a, a, a neutral selfishness, which means you're giving to yourself. And that's not a bad thing. So, um, you know, if you look at uh, 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 two-sided transactions involve far more than than uh, goods and services. Anytime we do something with someone else because we enjoy the activity more than doing it alone, we have a two-sided transaction. And so, if you go to a movie with a friend, you you exchange uh, glances and laughter and conversation, all of which enhances the experience for both of you. You know, uh, attending concerts, watching sporting events 
instruments, sitting on a bench, some activities such as putting on a theatrical production or playing basketball. You know, these activities uh, are willing participants are getting something of value that is worth investing in. And that is a sense of selfishness, too. But it's a good thing because you're giving to each other. And that's important, a sense of belonging. So, you know. Obviously, uh, we often hear that, you know, you only have two choices to be selfish, which is bad, or to be selfless and serve others. Well, we can be both. We don't need to focus on the selfish. We want to focus on how we can enhance life. And so that's the good side. We don't want to live in our darkness. Also, what makes people the most upset? If you really want somebody uh, to argue, if you really, you know, the bottom line is it, it's trust. Um, if you can't trust someone, you are going to have a lot of conflict. Every single conflict you're ever going to have in your life is a trust issue. And if you can just dig down and find out what is that trust issue, you can eliminate the argument. And so, you know, dishonesty is, is an attitude or behavior. And if, if it's uh, sufficiently rehearsed, it becomes a habit. So once formed, habits automate, uh, include attitude and behavior that produce a knee-jerk response to events throughout life. There's some people that will just lie about everything. They just cannot, uh, they've formed the idea that it's okay to lie, and they just operate in that constant uh, dishonesty, even if it's over trivial things. You know, so the honorable thing is to try to understand how dishonest am I and think carefully about it and how it contributes to your personal in and integrity. So habit is a good thing. If repeated uh, in and about being honest, we tend to become better people. To be honest is not hard to do if you form the habit of living honestly. You know, a, a clear example of teaching yourself to be uh, dishonest uh, if you want to look at it, is uh, if you're desensitized to lying. So, you know, uh, um, the greatest lying uh, occurs uh, for the benefit of the lying person. So dishonesty persists at lower levels if the other uh, person, if someone else benefits from the lie. You know, there, there, if there's a zero lying uh, condition that's put out there, People feel much safer and freer to communicate and accept the fact that not all of life is uh, uh, good or bad or black and white. You know, people's lies, once they start lying and do that, they, the, they grow bolder and, and they often have to track all those lies, which is extremely difficult to do. And it, there's actually brain scans that reveal that activity in a key emotional center of the brain, which is called the amygdala, become less active and desensitized as dishonesty grows. So in essence, the brain is being trained to lie. And so, you know, lying is lazy and it's easy to do. And so emotions are the core of the issue. Normally, we tend to feel guilty when we're doing something we know is wrong, like lying. But as we get in the habit of lying, associated shame and guilt habituates and becomes a part of our character. Now we get used to it and our consciousness doesn't bother us so much. So we're less constrained in the future uh, for the lying behavior. And we can't always be brutally honest, but, but it's now clear that each lie and dishonest act can escalate and negatively change the person that we are. You know, another uh, possibility is that positive reinforcement of behavior may be something that we need. And that means that we benefit from telling the truth and that we recognize what that benefit is so that we positive reinforce uh, not being dishonest. So uh, once again, let's just you know look at the simple the simple truths. Um, if, if you're going to be an honest person, if you're going to be an honest person and you tell the truth, you want to admit to somebody, you know, it's hard to tell you that, but I know that it's important that you know that. Um, and uh, the other thing about telling the truth is is indicating people what your intentions are. You know, I'm, I'm not intending to hurt you. I'm only intending to communicate information that you really probably need in your life. And, and so, you know, if we don't give honest feedback to other people, we lose our value in life. And so it's important for us to honestly give feedback to people that can benefit them.
you know, it's almost a temptation to be uh, uh, dishonest, but it's very stressful uh, because you're always having to juggle other people's reality of who you are. And many times uh, some of what your behavior is doesn't match what your behavior is in other environments. A lot of people are different at work than they are at home, for instance. Uh, a lot of people are different on their own by themselves than they are in the public with other people. And so, uh, you know, when you can be the same person across the board and you operate off of those ethical standards consistently in every environment that you operate, you become a person of integrity because now people know who you are and what you're about and what they get no matter where you're at is going to be similar to the person that they know. And so... Um, you know, uh, back in uh, 2016, uh, the University of Amsterdam organized a one-day workshop on the question, is sin original? And it brought together a whole bunch of researchers who worked on the question whether self-serving lying is intuitive or honestly comes natural. And the most surprising outcome of the workshop was that the research findings disagreed Starkly, while some of the work presented support of the view that people were intuitively honest, a second stream of empirical evidence indicated the opposite, that, there, that we are intu uh, in, in intuitively dishonest people. So, um, an intuitively dishonest effect is when dishonesty does not harm uh, concrete, real victims. And, and so, it... It's really interesting that a few studies have, have experimentally tested the influence of social harm directly. Uh, uh, hopefully, future research using uh, uh, you know good designs will provide deeper insights into how the social consequences of lying relate to the role of intuition. So, you know, it looks like. Um, when they go, when people go to where their gut, people are more likely to uh, pocket the change. And that means that they're going to take away whatever they can. So uh, if they were uh, buying the coffee at the, the large chain in which a person suffering is rather ambiguous, uh, buying the coffee from a street vendor, they might be more mindful of the money being paid. But if they're in a large corporate environment, they could care less. And so if something happens where change is left or somebody did the wrong transaction, people in a larger, uh, more corporate environment like a grocery store or whatever, they're more likely not to care much about the grocery store rather than do what's right and, and, and write the transaction if there's, a, if there's something wrong with it. So, you know, it's interesting that we, we are floating targets when it comes down to well, we're, what we're talking about is, you know, the fact that we're floating targets uh, as far as what we choose or not choose to do in certain environments. It's all situational, and, and it's a constant debate that we all have to have, and it's important to understand that it's easy uh, to understand the motivation to get along with others. For, for starters, humans are incredibly social beings who need positive relationships. And so if we're going to go for positive, we have to be positive. And, and you know, if in fact there would really be no chance of society existing if people did not by large cooperate with each other and get along. And so meanness is another characteristic that people have and, and, uh, and we carry with us. And we can be mean uh, to our children, we could be mean to our partner, we could be mean to our friends. Many times we're very selective who we take mean out on. Some people take it out on their employees, for instance, you know, and it's not cool. But why do we struggle with this horrible thing of, uh, of, of being uh, mean? Well, you know, people often are hurt or harm others because they feel that they're being harmed. People often are mean because they feel that they're not being considered, and so they act out uh, being mean. And there's a lot of research about uh, the popular belief that people are mean to others in order to feel better about themselves. And so what they're doing is seeking power. And uh, it's a sad thing, but that is what our, na our nature often does. You know, there's a distinctiveness. Uh, social identity theory argues that humans have a basic psychological need for positive distinctfulness. And uh, it, it's in for interesting. In other words, people have a need to feel the, the unique 
from others in a positive ways. As humans naturally uh, form groups, this is the need for positive distinction and it extends to the groups we belong to. So that is, we tend to view uh, our in-groups more favorably than out-groups. And so, um, you know, it's important. As a consequence, we tend to see people who are not part of our group as less positively than people who are. And this is especially likely to occur when there's a competition between groups or when people feel like um, they are uh, uh, being outed. And, and so it's in, interesting that we give ourselves permission to treat, treat other people if they're in an out group differently than we will the in group. And, and so there's, there's people that uh, display in group favoritism and further that, that degrade out group, uh, out group members. And by the way, what's interesting is sports tends to reinforce that perspective. Uh, some people are healthy about sports and they know that it's just a game. Other people just get behind their team and everybody else is demonized. Uh, it's amazing that uh, people will actually get in fights at, at uh, different sports arenas and stuff like that uh, because of who they're rooting for and how far they go. And, and it just shows the nature of that what people can be. There's also this thing called a social comparison theory, and it argues that people naturally make comparisons to other people, and basically we judge. And so these comparisons often make us feel worse about ourselves or better about ourselves. So as generally uh, prefer to feel good, we're prone to making downward comparisons, downward judgments on other people, and that's because of our own insecurities with ourselves. And so, uh, you know... Uh, more negative towards other people when we feel uh, insulted or belittled, and that can make people feel better about themselves, strangely. And so, um, you know, it's sad that we have to do negative things to other people that hurt other people to make ourselves feel better. But that, once again, is human nature. There's another term. It's called classical projection. And Sigmund Freud, he argued decades ago that people cope with negative views of themselves by perceiving other people as having particularly high levels of that same negative view. And so, uh, you know, it, it basically, say you're feeling dishonest, you're more likely to see other people as dishonest, and that makes you, in a sense, feel more honest yourself. And so that's a sad thing. And research actually supports that idea that in, in one study, when people were told they were high in anger, they were more likely to perceive another person's behavior as exhibiting anger. And in doing so, they had less angry thoughts themselves. Also, there's this thing called an ego threat. And so researchers have discovered that it is uh, this threatened self-esteem that drives a lot of aggression. In other words, it doesn't really matter if people feel good or bad about themselves. In general, what matters is that people in the moment feel worse about themselves than usual. And so this, this uh, makes them behave in a way that they're down. They take away from other people. When they come in the room, they're bringing a negative energy because they're looking at themselves from a low perce uh, perception of self-esteem. And um, threatened self-esteem is associated with a, a wide range of aggressive behaviors. For instance, when people are insulted as opposed to praise, they're more likely to force another person to listen to obnoxious noises. Uh, my son does that. <laughs> so, you know, whether it is a, a means of promoting our, our groups or ourselves, we tend to be a more aggressive when our self-worth has been challenged and we're not feeling particularly positive about ourselves. When our self-esteem is threatened, we are more likely to compare ourselves to people we think are worse off than us and to see other people as having more negative traits and to degrade people who aren't members of our group. And so that group think is uh, something that we have to be very mindful of. When you insult or criticize someone else, you know, it, it may say more about you, how you're feeling about yourself than other people. Insecurity over ourselves drives much of the cruelty in the world. Now, here's another beautiful trait, arrogance. And it, it's a trait uh, that society often yeah, it values, rewards, particularly in arenas like politics and business. You know, we often think of successful people 
as those who are able to push themselves out in front of others to win a competition, whether it's getting more votes, more customers, more points on the basketball court, the arrogant, uh, you know, show little care or concern for whom they leave behind in the dust. So if, if you've got an arrogant coworker, you know how frustrating it can be to be constantly outshined when the boss comes around uh, with bonus checks. If you happen to be in a romantic relationship with an arrogant partner, you, you can feel similarly frustrated with all the pushiness and need for domination that arrogant people require. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's a studies uh, that Adam Fetterman of uh, Knowledge Media Research in uh, Germany, uh, that he investigated the behavior of people with other people. He investigated the behavior of people high and low in arrogance in response to stimulus that were high and low in power motivation. And the, the reasoning is that arrogance reflects an interpersonal quality which combines a desire to overpower others. So the opposite of arrogance is affiliation, and in that is the desire to get along with others. So the, the main research question Fetterman had was whether tendencies tend to favor one class of incentives over the other, and that might provide insights into how people uh, form their personality. People high on the arrogance or power uh, dimension of the personality uh, should, according to this view, be drawn into dominated related words or images. And so they'll therefore, they'll be primed to process power theme stimulus, pardon the airplane flying over my head, <laughs> from, uh, you know, uh, uh, this this power uh, stimulus. And, and the opposite, and, and if you also look at it um, quickly, it, it's more important to try to get closer uh, to them than to uh, protect the weakness. So that means that the dominant person is going to gravitate people to them, and the person would rather not have conflict that this receiving that dominance, and so they'll fold down under that dominant person. Since the arrogant you know, care more about uh, winning than about friendship, uh, your relationship with people whose personalities prime them to seek victory is likely to be rocky rather than letting them uh, uh, get to you or walk all over you. Just remember that they're, they've gotten this way for a reason. And like uh, those children, and, and you know, they eventually learn to accept themselves as they are, even if it means they won't always win. So, you know, people that are arrogant, it's a facade, and you have to understand that that's what it is, and don't take it too serious. If you're arrogant yourself, you're actually showing yourself to be a fairly insecure person. So, you know, uh, it's not bad to be confident, you know, but it is bad to be arrogant. So what is the difference between the two? Well, we'll talk about that. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Life-changing events can have positive and or negative repercussions. When they happen, they can feel elating or devastating to those affected. It can also get in the way of your personal and professional life. On Life-Altering Events with host Frank Zakari, we examine the scope of these events and discuss how to move forward in the wake of the opportunities presented. It's never too late to get started or pick up the pieces and move forward. Listen Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. 
plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're talking about Despicable Us. And, you know, bottom line is uh, we all have uh, despicable traits. The one that I was just talking about is uh, arrogance. And there is a huge difference between arrogance and confidence. People that are confident, they know they have a skill. They know they have a knowledge that other people need or want or enjoy. And so they're they're confident in their, their ability to deliver in certain areas in their life. And that's a good thing. When people are arrogant, they're just arrogant across the board. So they view other people in a, in a different light, in a negative light. And uh, so that's kind of sad, but they have a tendency to put themselves before other people and try to define themselves in their arrogance as a leader, but yet they may not have the skill sets to validate their arrogance. That means they may not be good at a lot of things. They may be a jack of all trades and a master of none, but they tend to live in their own delusion of who they are. And that, once again, is, is a deep insecurity. So we have to recognize that we all come to our own traits based on our biology, based on our upbringing, based on our experiences. And so uh, we do a lot of social learning that develops our character. And many of these traits are developed in our childhood and can form into what's called personality disorders. So uh, here's another one that's really uh, complicated is rudeness. You know, complaints about rudeness and other people aren't new in our society. But modern life presents many opportunities to be uncivil. So there there are the people who, who can't resist checking their cell phones while they're talking to you, those who dawdle and fiddle around at the self-checkout counter at the, at the drugstore while you're sitting there waiting and you're 10 minutes late to something you need to get to or you need to go to the doctor. And there's just a lot of people that could care less about you uh, they could care less about anyone else, uh, especially if you look at people that are driving. People that drive can be so rude because they don't have to be held accountable unless they actually get in an accident. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, you set aside precious time to work uh, or relax and don't feel like uh, dealing with interruptions. So it may be a, a group of uh, commuters who decide to entertain each other with uh, anecdotes uh, about, you know, poker or something like that. And, and so you don't you may be in a place that you just don't get that time that you need. And so it's kind of crazy. It's just kind of crazy how uh, people don't always respect other people and can be so blatant about it. And so that's something that we have to constantly challenge ourselves with. You know, uh, rudeness uh, only makes you irritable and distracted, and you can't shake off that bad mood oftentimes. And so um, there's uh, research, by the way, at, at the University of Carolina at uh, uh, Andrew Woolham and colleagues, that was back in 2017, it shows just how disrupting and upsetting rudeness can be. Uh, that The focus of that study was on workplace rudeness, which is somewhat different from rudeness that occurs among strangers or people who only see each other occasionally. However, uh, incivility at work is becoming an, a topic of investigation uh, by organizational health psychologists who see it as an important contributor to higher overall stress levels and lower production. So it's, it's not a, a large 
uh, logical leap to take the findings of research into other areas of daily life, which rudeness invades your uh, sense of well-being, as you'll you'll see. So, uh, Willem began with the pro- the premise that rudeness may seem only minor in nature, but often dismissed as innocuous but that it can have disastrous consequences going well beyond harming the health of workers themselves. And so in that study, they note that even a mild, rude incident can severely harm the performance of uh, medical professionals, increasing the probability of fatal consequences in in patients. And, you know, that's a pretty strong indictment of uh, uh, incivility. So the research backs up the claim that an impressive but flawed typically involves measuring reactions to to one-time events. But rudeness is ever-evolving. And uh, and once it's done, it's expected. And so a lot of people can be very angry and upset with each other uh, by by, uh, allowing for rude people to function. You know, thinking of rude people on the train or in a a class, these are are, – Probably not isolated events if you tend to go out in the same routes every day and on the same fit, fitness class or whatever. Like rudeness at work, running into incivility in such settings can put you into lingering bad mood. So once again, what is this? What is the root of, of rudeness? And that means that there's no consideration for other people, that everyone is an object and the only thing that's important is the person. And so uh, that's easy to do when you don't have accountability. And, you know, rather than just waiting for rude behavior uh, to rear its head, ask people to report on times they've been treated uh, rudely and have a dialogue about it and discuss it. That is a worthy uh, thing to do. As a matter of fact, what's interesting in psychology um, there is a uh, in the um, contextual theories, there is the idea of, of being respectful to each other. And that is a, di- a family dialogue that you constantly have is a respectful uh, a conversation about how are we treating each other and to continue that that uh, dialogue. And by consciously doing that, families can come into balance. Well, that can happen in any environment you're in, especially at work. Now, there's this other trait that drives people nuts, and that is attention-seeking behavior. When, you know, when a kid's not able to get attention from their uh, primary caregiver, they'll do whatever kids do and act out by saying or doing something that creates some drama. Children do this because negative attention is better than no attention at all. <laughs> so, make no mistake if you ever say, I should just kill myself to see how your partner will respond. It's it's unquestionably an intention-seeking behavior, and it's one of the unhealthiest actions you can indulge in. So creating this kind of drama in adult relationship is, is a sad commentary on the obviously broken communication dynamic. You know, the sad thing is, is a lot of people throw the word divorce at each other, and when they throw that word divorce – it becomes something that now the person that's receiving it has to consider that you're actually thinking about divorce and what would that look like and what would my life be like. So all of a sudden there is a wedge that's drawn between these people and their boundaries are not good because they're talking about divorce. That, that word's actually brought up and it can often be a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. As a matter of fact, the people that talk divorce are oftentimes the ones that get divorced. You know, and if it's just for attention-seeking behavior, it can turn into a much worse scenario. You know, um, a little drama here and there is really part of life, but making it a lifestyle will not allow you to find peace uh, with other people. And so if you're investing in being a drama queen or a a drama king, you need to take a, a look at why you think this behavior is okay. And ask yourself why you need all that attention. You know, there may be some insecurity or self-esteem issues going on. This does not mean that you are bad, broken, or evil. But it does mean that there may be a little hole in your soul. And you need to spend some time patching it and being able to be okay with yourself. You know, the good news is that you can help yourself to heal. So what is peace? Peace is acceptance. Accept your life. You know, being with someone who continually makes you feel wrong, guilty, or not enough is going to make you very unhappy. 
So, you know, you need to fix that trait. If, if your partner utilizes um, attention-seeking behaviors to the point of making you want to chew your arm off in order to escape, well, you need to start setting some strong boundaries. If you tolerate bad behavior, you will simply encourage it uh, to continue happening. And so setting a limit on a person who can go ballistic at any moment is scary, but that's why they do it, to keep control. So now you have to neutralize the situation by not controlling it, but by participating in it. In short, if your partner chooses to act out and it's making you feel uncomfortable, then leave the room. You know, it's that's the adult thing. Leave the room. Don't join the conflict. Or call a timeout and say, you know, let's get back in a half hour and we'll talk. If you can talk like an adult, if we can talk like adults and re- and, and, and uh, discuss what you're concerned about, let's do that. And so, you know, some behavioral problems seem to uh, plague compulsive uh, overeaters and substance abusers more than anything. And that's excessive attention-seeking appears to be an ingredient of people who overeat and have uh, substance issues. You know, all humans require attention. Without getting and giving attention, you could not have uh, a, a social aspect to your life. So getting attention is necessary for life's vital enterprises and can be the difference between life and death in a crisis. Therefore, not getting adequate attention uh, can threaten the quality and sustainability of life. So getting functional social attention is understandable. However, extreme attention seekers go to unhealthy lengths that are driven by desperation. So excessive attention seeking is, is not a character flaw. It is a brain wiring response to our early developmental trauma caused by neglect and, and that the brain observes its environment, wires itself according to survive in that world and it presumes it will uh, uh, like those experiences. So newborns are extremely dependent on getting their mother's attention for, so, for survival. So the more their needs are neglected during early development, the more the child equates to getting attention with survival and safety. So, you know, that's where this stuff gets wired in our brain and it continues. All right, we're going to take another quick break. We're going to finish up on attention seeking and we're going to move into violence and hypocrites. Come back. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is dr. 
GBMFT at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about despicable us and our characteristics that make us despicable people. And uh, all of us have the ingredients to be despicable people if we want to be. So what I'm trying to do in this show is just highlight those areas that we – that are the biggest, that, that are the most disruptive to who we are in our life. Um, you know, it's not a bad thing to try to be a good person, uh, but to be a good person all the time is just not in our nature. But to be able to at least catch ourselves and manage ourselves without having to, to rely on other people to manage us in our bad behaviors um, is a good thing. You know, you want to live your life consultatively. And that's an important thing because we are social creatures. We depend on each other and we're not alone. You know, um, attention seeking is what we're talking about. So how does excessive attention seeking evolve in people? Well, we talked about that in the previous segment a little bit. But basically, the brain is wired to, to equate the lack of attention as dangerous, And naturally, it responds to this as a threat in the amygdala. Uh, And once again, that's a subcortal structure. And so where thinking does not occur. So the... um, it's it's like a it's like a uh, micromanaging mother, you know. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stop that. Go here. Don't go there. And it can intervene in this process. So if a dog had wings, it wouldn't be a dog. But in in you know critical thinking part of the brain that disengages the amygdala, it swings into action, and uh, it basically needs serotonin to do that. And, and so what it does is it makes us uh, reptiles. <laughs> and so we don't tend to uh, measure ourselves or look at ourselves as social. And so we put ourselves first. And so once again, attention-seeking behavior is an act of desperation. It means that we feel dangerous in the world that we're in. Um, most uh, – what's interesting is um, when studies of ADHD kids – they tend to be hyperactive and excessive attention seekers in order to control the room. So the more they create drama, the more they feel safe because they're drawing everybody's attention to them. And so, you know, how does that pattern, you know, how does that drama addiction happen? So the obvious answer is the drama gets attention. However, it's more than that. Drama causes our, uh, our brain to secrete endorphins, which are pain suppressing and pleasure inducing and which uh, heroines and opiates mimic. And so drama eases the anxiety of wanting more attention than you're getting. And so naturally, since drama uses the same mechanisms in the brain as opiates, people can easily become addicted to drama. And so like any addiction, you, you build up a tolerance and that continuously requires to get more of the same chemical effect. And so, you know, drama means you need more and more crisis to get the same thrill. And once again, you're forming what's called an addictive brain. So people that are dramatic, once again, tend to fall into substance addictions. And that's the sad thing, but that's a consequence of programming their brain like that. You know, it is fixable. There's also another uh, factor. You, You know, people use drama as uh, a feel good um, and they use uh, dopamine the brain's happy dance drug and so dopamine works by releasing more dopamine on on anticipating getting the reward which is the attention that you're hoping for so you know is attention seeking fixable no it's not fixable in the sense that you cannot change your brain's basic wiring nor can you completely erase what the residual effects of early life trauma is however it's manageable and so a person would do that by beginning to accept who they are and loving what they have more than what they do not have. And so this means even if what they have is chain a challenge and difficult to manage, in addition, find a person who is honest and cares enough about you to tell you the truth even when you do not want to hear it. 
And you can ask this person if your emotional interpretation of a situation is over the top, but use creative outlets to lessen your baseline uh, of stress. You know, meditate, do yoga, act as if you're not a drama person and a compulsive attention seeker. The more you do that, the more effectively your neurons will fire and the easier the behavior will become and the more you can come down. You know, I suspect that the reason compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, substance abusers are more prone to excess attention seeking and drama addiction is because those populations are more likely to have an enduring developmental trauma. And so the important thing here is to realize that not all neglect is evidence of a lack of love. Sometimes people only have so much they can give and sometimes that's not enough and so there's a healing in accepting that your parents did not give you as much attention as you required forgiving them for being uh, who they were uh, is getting to a higher ground and the other thing is recognizing that they are human and recognizing them as people rather than a parent slipping off that label of mom and dad and just looking at them as a person that they are now, another despicable uh, trait is hypo- hypocrisy, a hypocrite. If, you, if you're having an ar- argument and tensions mount, you pull out your big guns, uh, half-cocked moral principles, and, and you, you, you just claim, you know, uh, basically you claim in hypocrisy, you, you, you claim other people shouldn't be doing this stuff, but the stuff that you do. So you allow yourself to do it, but nobody else can do it. So it's a double standard uh, by preventing you to have one standard that, and, and so that you project a different standard on everybody else than what you actually live by. You know, always be this, never be that. One size fits all rules are easy to remember, fun to preach, useful to wield on arguments, impossible to follow. We are least hypocritical when we realize and admit it, and the most hypocritical when we ignore and deny it. So we all try to figure out the context in which is better to be honest versus dishonest, receptive versus unreceptive, giving, ungiving, and that's what we really do and should do. We don't become hypocrites by sometimes being dishonest and unreceptive, ungiving, but by pretending that one uh, never should be as though it's possible to live by an impossible moral principles rather than admitting that like everyone, we're struggling with moral dilemmas, deciding where, where to be honest and dishonest, where to be receptive and unreceptive, where to be giving and ungiving. That's the work we're all doing. And what unites us in the common cause is trying to do it well. Attacking each other when one side fits all rules is how we become hypocrites. Defending ourselves when the rules come back to bite us as we reinforce our our own hypocrisy. So we declare some impossible categorical rule and and then then we're forced to, to navigate the fact that we do it. And so that's what infuriates people when they try to project that you should do one thing and I will do another. Don't be late to work and then you be late to work. Um. You know, finish your homework. Well, don't when you don't even finish your your work. Um, you know, clean the dishes when you don't even do your own chores. You know, accountability is one thing that people are horrible at, <laughs> and so we have to really fight that battle. You know, a fake absolute moral principles. Uh, it stunts our moral growth because we've decided we should always do this and never that. And that means that we think we are perfect in some way. If we want to become wiser, we have to trade out our unworkable moral absolutes for moral frameworks modeled on, uh, let's just say, like the serenity prayer with its quest for ever-improved wisdom to know the difference between situations that call uh, this versus that responses. Now, the big... Another big trait that is un- is unreliableness, and uh, we tend to think that memories are stored in our brains just as they are in computers. And so once registered, that data is put away for safekeeping and eventual recall, and the facts don't change. But, uh, you know, neurology has shown that each time we remember something, we are reconstructing the event, reassembling it from traces of our brain. And, uh, you know, psychology has pointed out that we also suppress memories that are painful or damaging to our self-esteem. So we could either say 
Um, as a result of a memory, it's unreliable. And we could also say it's adaptive, reshaping itself to accommodate new situations we find ourselves facing. Either way, we have to face the fact that it is flexible. Our memory is not absolute. For most of us, it usually means we, we recall a rosier past than we actually had, though some of us are tormented by memories of a painful past that we can't shake, and that seems to get worse every time we revisit them. But for all of us, that means an incomplete past, and we have to accept that. Nothing brings this home better than the memories of, of witnesses and trials uh, all too many people have been put behind bars on the testimony of witnesses who, when challenged by more objective data, have later proved to be misremembered. You know, an extreme uh, form of this uh, phenomenon by people who confess to crimes they did co not commit. You know, uh, uh, there's been an article in the New York Times where false confessions have figured in 24% of the approximately 289 convictions uh, reversed by DNA evidence. So that's amazing that we can reconstruct memories in, in a false way. But it makes a lot of sense to keep objective records of our decisions and our acts. So if we use our computers for that, we can usually count on their invariant memories, but we usually feel it is too much trouble to record that information. So once again, uh, people that are unreliable, that trait, uh, will drive other people crazy because that means you as a person cannot be trusted. People that have excuses to not be available when they're supposed to be available, to not follow through, people who procrastinate, they're unreliable. They're unreliable people and they've made that a part of their character. Unreliable is a trait of depression and anxiety because people are always feeling vulnerable and so they go by how they feel rather than what they think because their emotions are so strong. So unreliableness forms depression, believe it or not. You know, violence is another thing. And, uh, you know, violence is, uh, is a really strong psychological dis dysfunction. And uh, it, 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 it basically forms the idea that we're not safe in our culture with other people. You know, people at rallies, terror, you know, uh, terrorism, workplace shootings, uh, school shootings, all that stuff is making us feel more stressed, more violent, more insecure. You know, uh, the, the biology of anger and aggression is the root cause of most violent behavior. Violent behavior propagates violent behavior because they usually want to have a social response to violent behavior. And so that's the sad thing is that violence calls for violence or a response. And many times we have that, you know, in this politically charged world that we're living in right now. It's horrible, but violence is out there and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And that's because people have pathologized each other and labeled each other and they treat each other as that label rather than the person that they really are. People get behind issues, they get behind uh, ideas, and then they go forward with that with a very violent, angry a tendency to want the rest of the world to understand them, but what they're under, what they're accomplishing is shutting out the rest of the world because nobody wants to hear their violent garbage. So, here's some other despicable traits: bullying. Well, people that bully is like a dog chewing on a squeaky toy. You know, see, I'm chewing this squeaky toy, and then they chew the squeaky out of the toy. But if you have the same squeaky toy and it doesn't have a squeaker. That will lay in the corner for the rest of its life. So bullies just want a response. If you don't respond, they tend to move on to the next target unless you consistently respond. Um, also, closed-mindedness is a despicable trait. Entitlement, a despicable trait. Cheaters, greedy people, inconsiderate, mental manipulators, annoying people, short-tempered, judgmental irresponsible, ir uh, immoral. These are all battles that we all go through in life to deal with. And if we can deal with these negative traits and turn them and try to go for more positive as people, we might have a better life. All right, that's our show. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Our audience has grown off the charts. I'd love to hear from you uh, on our webpage on Voice America uh, Empowerment Channel, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology, or email me 
at drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Now remember, when the old people at weddings say you're next, do the same for them at funerals. <laughs> also, if you feel like killing yourself, before you go, let a narcissist know that your plan is to climb their ego and jump to their IQ. <laughs> also remember, if only a doctor could remove our ego to unclog our reality, and then... Deja poo, the feeling of having heard the same crap again. Thanks, everybody. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 